So, uh, we are talking about Santa Claus today. I'm looking around in the house here, and I'm thinking, anybody have any real little kids in here? So, I think it's okay. I think it's safe. You be paying attention here and see what you think. We start with the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, the lawyer said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? The lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, but wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Yes, who is my neighbor? We might as well say it right up front, right? If you got to ask, you failed the test, right? If you got to ask, you, you missed the point. Are black folk my neighbor? Are the poor my neighbor? Are refugees, immigrants, liberals, conservatives, gays, Muslims, Baptists, homeschoolers, anti-vaxxers, are they your neighbor? Or are we asking now, Jesus, who's my neighbor? Exactly who is my neighbor? So wanting to justify himself. So doing a little bit of image management. Wanting to say, I'm okay for not liking somebody. The lawyer asked Jesus to define who's his neighbor. And Jesus answers with the most famous parable of all parables, arguably, the Good Samaritan. Parables fool us, don't they? Parables are this brilliant teaching device. I've tried to write a parable. It's extremely hard. You've got to be brilliant to figure these things out. Try it sometime. When you're sitting around, like, try and come up with a parable. They're hard. They, they, um, they kind of jump you. Right? They, they kind of suck you in like, yeah, this is a fun story. I'm getting in. Yeah, that's cool. I'm tracking. And then all of a sudden, hey, wait a second. You're talking about me. Wah. You know? And like Emily Dickinson said, tell the truth, but tell it slant. And that's what parables do. They tell the truth slant. They kind of wonk you upside the head when you least expect it, and, and, you're, and you kind of like it, which is the weirdest part of the whole thing. And that's what Jesus does with, with the lawyer, with the Bible expert. That's what he does. He crafts this parable so that the good person in it is the Jews' most despised race of people, the Samaritans. And Jesus' point is, Jews, if you want to be a good neighbor, be a Samaritan. What? You know, it's too bad that Santa Claus has become this jolly old cartoon character so commercialized, so commodified, so cheapened. It's too bad because everyone should be as generous as the real Santa Claus. We should all be as generous as Santa Claus 365 days a year, not just once on Christmas, right? This day, this very day, which is part of the reason why I'm talking about Santa Claus today, this very day is St. Nicholas Day, December 6th, started in 345 A.D., this is, Saint, this is Bishop Nicholas's day in the church calendar. You know, most of us Protestants don't really celebrate the church calendar. We got Christmas and Easter down. We do Lent. Around here at Lakeland, we kind of lean into it. And, but uh, traditionally, on this day, on December 6th, this was what was really the real Christmas day because Nicholas gave gifts. 
and so in uh, not until even just a couple hundred years ago, everyone gave gifts on December 6th. And then on Christmas Day, you just went to church. It was kind of a really cool, nice church day. But the real gift-giving day, what we kind of turned into Christmas, is actually happens today. Just traditionally, just so you know that sort of trivia. Right? So, um, the church's day then was December 6th. So, uh, that's the gift-giving day. So, here's the story. And it's in the Advent Guide as well. So you'll be able to read this tonight or whenever you do Advent this afternoon or something and hear this, be able to see the story again. Legend has it that in the town of Myra, that's in Asia Minor, in the town of Myra, which is present-day Turkey, in the town of Myra, a poor family had three daughters who were being courted for marriage, but they had no dowry. They were dowerless, right? And in that day and age, a young woman, and we're talking young, probably 14 years old, 15, Uh, When a young woman had no dowry, she was usually doomed to a life of shame, and which would mean end up being some sort of sex trafficking or or prostitution. So Nicholas took it upon himself, Bishop Nicholas took it upon himself to anonymously slip bags of gold into their old stockings as they were hanging outside to dry, and he did so under the cover of darkness. Nicholas rescued three poor disadvantaged girls from disgrace in a life of poverty and possibly slavery. And as a result, Nicholas became the patron saint of children, you know, because these girls were young. They could have even been 12. And he died December 6th, 345 A.D. This is a very old tradition. The legend of Nicholas was mostly ignored, though, until 1087, when greedy Italian sailors sailed to Myra and stole Bishop Nicholas's bones, the relics, to take them back to Bari, Italy, and sell them to a bishop. So it was a big profit scamming thing, you know. And um, they're still there in Bari, Italy, by the way. So soon, the legend of Nicholas began to spread throughout Western Europe. And during the 16th century, during the Reformation in Germany, you know, Martin Luther and all that, uh, they wanted to refocus the Catholic Church's uh, corruption of the tradition as a money thing and get back onto the Christ child. So they, they didn't believe, the Reformation you know, didn't believe in relics and that sort of thing. And so they went back to the teaching about the Christ child. And in German, that's the, um, that's the Christkindlen, Christkindlen, Christ child, which we got translated, Englishized, into Chris Kringle. But our most direct link to Nicholas comes from the Dutch tradition of St. Nicholas called Sinderklaas, who supposedly sailed from Spain to, to, uh, Dutch children, to fill Dutch children's wooden shoes with nuts and little treats and so forth and candies and things like that around Christmas time. And so the tradition came to America when the Dutch and German immigrants came in the 19th century. Um, and then in 1822... A Christian seminary professor wrote a children's poem called A Visit from St. Nicholas. And it starts, "'Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house. And that's how we got our version of Christmas and Santa Claus. Now, at this point, and you know me well enough that at this point, this is where I'm going to go off on Christmas. So every couple of years, you get a big dose of this. So you can begin your eye roll now. And that's just fine with me because I'm going to do it anyway. The real Santa Claus is what I want to talk about. The real Santa Claus is St. Nicholas, and St. Nicholas is a giver, a generous giver, a secret generous giver. No strings attached. There's nothing 
that's gone on into the modern invention of Santa Claus where somehow you better watch out, you better not cry, and you better not shout because Santa Claus is watching you and it's not going to go well if you have been bad. You better be good 365 days a year or it's not, you're not going to get anything. It has nothing to do with St. Nicholas and Christianity or for that matter the cross of Jesus Christ and grace. I don't know how this all came about, but it's denigrated and fallen apart into this performance-driven thing. So Santa Claus has become this sort of judge, you know? And of course, we all know there's some little smirk and smile, and nobody really gets counted bad. But what's happening is, and this is going to be my main point here on this thing, is you can call it subliminal, you can call it innuendo, you can call it filtering down or whatever, but there is this notion that somehow God is judging you based upon your performance instead of grace. That's, where, that's why I go off. And instead then, it would have been like, um, you know, instead of Bishop Nicholas being our inspiration for Christmas, we got this, this weird Santa Claus figure, and it would be like Jesus' good Samaritan, uh, you know, the Samaritan story wasn't even ever, didn't even have, ever happen. And that the idea of Nicholas, who just gave with no recognition expected, didn't even happen. And somehow then, Nicholas got involved in this thing where it's like he's asking, well, are they worthy to receive the gold? What's become of Santa Claus? What's become of St. Nicholas's day and the whole image of Christmas? Tear my robes if I had robes at this horrific injustice to St. Nick and the idea of giving. The entire Christmas season has become, children, if you haven't been good, then Satan doesn't like you. I mean, Santa doesn't like you. Satan doesn't like you either. Notice the slight nuance going on in this whole thing. You've earned these switches and this lump of coal by all of your actions all year long. And that's just the way it's going to turn out for you when you stand at the pearly gates. So just give up. The entire American Christian culture is bankrupt with this non-grace-based, moralistic view of good and bad, this judgmental idea. You can keep doing the eye roll. It's fine. But in case you don't think I'm right on this thing, you think I'm pressing the point too far, let's just dip into some Americana. 1964, stop action animation, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and how deplorable this story really is. Russ, can we roll the video? Let's just check this. All right. All right, yearlings. All right now. That's better. My name is Comet. And even though I'm your instructor, I want to be your pal, right? Right. My job is to make bucks out of you, so let's go. Now then, our first game is called Takeoff. We all want to pull Santa sleigh someday, don't we? So we must learn to fly. Now, who's first to fly? One at a time, one at a time. You, you're Dash's little boy, aren't you? You go first. Now, the whole trick is getting up enough speed and jumping into the wind. You got it? Go ahead. (laughs) Very good for a first try. Next. 
He won't get to us for a while yet. Now's your chance to get acquainted with that dough. I think you're cute. I'm cute. I'm cute. Magnificent. I'm cute. I'm cute. She said I'm cute. Not bad. Not bad at all. <laughs> hey, you're okay. She said I'm cute. Ha indeed huh pull out the oboe and the cello for that because i'm telling you this does not go well after watching this debased abomination of saint nicholas in the version of santa claus little children your little children are going to go to bed not with visions of sugar plums dancing in their head but wondering whether or not they performed well oh no it gets worse than that it gets worse than that judge santa comes in and shames rudolph's dad donner for what? His son is ugly? That's it? Santa Claus is shaming somebody? No reindeer games, no sleigh ride, no Christmas cheer. After Santa berates Donner, Rudolph's parents, mom included, though reluctantly, both disown Rudolph. And he is cast out and left to wander the desolate Arctic along with a little outcast little elf named Hermie, wandering in constant terror of the abominable snow monster. And what's wrong with Hermie wanting to be a dentist? What's he got against dentist? Says the dentist in the crowd. I want to be a dentist. Like, the whole thing just goes downhill, downhill, downhill. And by the way, every year, it would not be a Wilburn household Christmas if we did not force all of us to sit in front of the television and watch this thing just to reinforce that life is based upon whether or not you look good enough and you perform well enough and you've never, ever once in your life done anything wrong. So my kids do really good at school. Yeah. Because of Rudolph. So, but seriously, what message, what slight subliminal message is being imprinted into your little child's mind with a Santa who is a God figure? Let's not deny it. When Santa judges people based on their usefulness and their attractiveness, and this day and age, therapist offices are filled with adults, 40, 50-year-olds, exiled on the island of misfit toys in there sitting in a chair saying, I'm not good enough, nobody wants me, and I don't belong. 
I know what you're thinking. You think, Wilburn, it's just a silly, stupid little 1964 stop-action animation. And it turns out good. He gets to lead the sleigh, you know. Oh, yeah, after he performs well and is found needful and useful and one off, the rest of the time, everybody thinks he's ugly, I guess. Stop theologizing, Wilburn. She's... What if the parable of the Good Samaritan was actually the parable of the not-so-quite-good-enough Samaritan? Huh? And Jesus tells the tale of a man who tried to earn his way to heaven by being good enough, attractive enough, and brilliant enough, and work his way into God's begrudging, switch-dealing favor. Huh? You know what you'd have? You know what you'd have if you had that sort of a not-quite-good-enough Samaritan story? You'd have George Bailey. And it's a wonderful life. That's what you'd have. Now, I'm not going to throw that one under the bus as well. But I want to just a smidge. Just kind of dinged here. Because, you know, we all know how George Bailey ends up. You know, it's like, hey, look, if you're born, then, you know, at least you're worth something. If you did anything good during that life, if you were George Bailey quality, what do you do for the people who didn't? Or think their life wasn't worth anything? So my strong suggestion here is that we do not need a children's Christmas Santa Claus who undermines the grace of God. Moreover, we have a beautiful, wonderful Nicholas who is an inspiration to give us all gifts and restore another person's dignity and not to shame someone. We do not give gifts to receive praise or worth. We are not worthy before God because we are good enough, attractive enough, or smart enough or anything like that. You are loved simply because you are you. And God loves you. We neither do we give gifts to earn any brownie points with God. You're already worth everything that Jesus Christ would die on a cross for you out of love. To have a relationship with you. We give gifts out of a response, out of a generous overflowing spirit of thankful gratitude for an unmerited gracious God who loves us that sets us free to do the gift giving. Not because we're trying to get any brownie points from anybody, but simply as a response to say, I have already been given everything I ever need in this world. Because God loves me. The Apostle Paul is very clear about unmerited grace. Galatians chapter 2, and it's worth memorizing. For through the law, I died to the law. For through the good deeds, trying to do good deeds, I died to the good deed doing. So that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through good deed doing, then Christ died for nothing. Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 19 through 21. If we make God's love only available through self-justifying laws of good or bad behavior, then Christ died for nothing, Paul says, because we simply work our way to heaven. And, and, and who knows if anybody has ever done enough to earn that. So let me just take this to the real St. Nicholas level. This is the deep level of generosity and giving here as you think about my, who is my neighbor. Allow me to introduce this entire gift-giving thing by introducing the idea of something I call the transaction. The transaction, okay? The transaction happens when well-meaning Christians donate and give things to poor and under-resourced people, and the giver, the the well-intentioned giver, unintentionally shames the recipient. 
When the giver shames the recipient, there is a transaction going on, and it is a power transaction. How? By showing the poor person their poverty and their need. The transaction says, I, the generous giver, am in a position of power to benefit you, the poor man. Poor man, you are less than me because you are needy. This was particularly keen this summer when the race tension started up, and I immediately called up the Hope Center's pastor, Marvin Daniels, and asked what I could do. I could tell by the long, slow silence on the other end of the phone that I had just taken my foot and put it in my mouth, and the transaction was in play. Immediately I knew I looked like another white pastor out in the burbs attempting to look like I care. And intended on my part or not, it looked an awful lot like I was just simply doing image management. Trying to make myself look good. I didn't intend to. I was trying to help. The transaction. White pastor calls needy black pastor and offers help. Who's in power? White pastor. Which way is the power flowing? From me down. What's the transaction? This. I am above you. You are below me. Author Bob Lupton, who we've had in here to speak, uh, on speaking about poverty and charity, toxic charity in particular. Bob Lupton points out that every time well-meaning middle-class churches deliver groceries on Thanksgiving... And they walk into a house with their arms full of food and sacks and gifts and things like that. He says, you ever notice that there's never a man in the house? And sure enough, I thought about it. And I thought, yeah, every time I've done that, I've walked in with the groceries in my arms uh, into somebody's house. And uh, there is never a man in the house. I just thought they were missing or whatever. And Bob Lupton says, well, they just stepped out the back door. Why? Because you just demonstrated to him that he is a failure at providing for his family. You shamed him. In the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, which is a commentary on the scriptures, in the Talmud, Rabbi Rav Jonah observes that Psalm 41, first verse, Psalm 41 does not begin, blessed is he who gives to the poor or helps the poor, but rather the text says, blessed is he who considers the poor. Now, this is hidden in translation But the Hebrew verb there for considers is maskil, for considers. And it means quite literally to look at. So when we do, uh, when Miss Jody did the blessing, you know, and all of that, and we do this, the face, this is a big, big deal in ancient cultures, to look at someone. So as you moms have often said, give me your eyes, look at me, you know, and you do that whole thing where it's like, look me in the face, there is a a consideration there is an emotional intelligence there's a completion of this idea of like you are all mine i am all yours i am not shaming you i'm not belittling you i i am present i look at you that's the meaning of masculine the talmud also comments comments because they just keep adding commentaries to the talmud it also means to visit the sick or to look with understanding. And these days, we might translate Psalm 41 to say, Blessed is the one who uses his emotional intelligence not to embarrass the poor. 
my, my translation. This past summer, I stood in a line at the grocery store uh, in August in Waco, Texas, sweltering heat. And uh, I was getting supplies for my daughter's, you know, apartment room in college. And two young adults were right in front of me in the grocery store checkout line. And they had this huge pile of groceries they were buying. And they were using food stamps and some cash. And they had more groceries than cash, right? And uh, she was on her cell phone calling home, uh, I guess to her mom or whatever, saying like, so what should I leave behind? Because we don't have enough money. And um, I knew what I was supposed to do, right? And just as you would probably think what you're supposed to do, which is pick up the tab for the stuff that's left, right? But I know about the transaction, and I'm going through the transaction, and I'm wrestling, and I'm having this split-second you know, moment there where I'm thinking through, like, okay, I know what's going to happen. So the transaction is this older white man bailing out poor person, right? Who's in power? Me. You know, I get it. So I, I couldn't help myself, and I took a chance, and I did not look at them, and I looked straight at the cashier, and I just said quietly, I said, I got the rest. The girl immediately looks at me and says, just the bread. All we need is the bread, with the phone still up to her head. All we need is the bread. We can get rid of the rest of it. Okay? And she said, thanks. Now, notice her shrewd negotiation in the transaction. We were bartering for her dignity. Oh, and the young man who was standing there with her, he had walked away, just like Bob Lupton said. I said little, and she said little, little, It was polite. And then, lo and behold, in God's good humor, out in the parking lot, our cars happened to be parked right next to each other. And they were loading their groceries, and I was loading in my groceries. Neither one of us looked at each other or said a word. And mine was intentional, and so was hers, as she kept her dignity, and I attempted to not have any image management go on. In the Talmud, Rav Jonah also said, is said to have avoided embarrassing a poor man whose family used to once be uh, well off. And uh, in, in the Talmud, he says this, he says, so it says that he said this, I hear, I hear that you are going to receive an inheritance somewhere in a foreign land. And I've come to offer this sum, which you can pay back to me in the future. Don't shame the poor, the Talmud says. It's a terrible thing to shame the poor. Always leave someone's dignity. Don't debase them. So when you give this season, don't shame the poor. But a Samaritan, while traveling near him, came near. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured out oil and wine on him. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll repay you for whatever you spent. Jesus' good Samaritan didn't stick around to hear, Thank you, or how can I ever repay you? Of course, you know, it's just a parable, and Jesus made it up. But keep in mind, Jesus was shrewd enough to design the parable to know what good gift looking, good gift giving looks like, just like St. Nicholas secretly giving the girls gold in their stockings for their dowry. 
Yeah, maybe it just doesn't matter anymore that anyone ever knows that you gave something. Maybe your left hand doesn't know what your right hand's doing. That's real generosity. That's true gift giving. That keeps someone's dignity in their shame and, and not shame them. That's the St. Nicholas level of gift giving. So think about that hard at this time of year as we do all of this generosity and giving. Is it about you or is it just simply about no one knowing? That's how it goes down. That's the real story of St. Nicholas. And it is a far better story than some Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer thingy where people's lives are based upon if they're good enough and whether or not they belong and whether or not they have anything useful in this world. Shame, shame, shame. Roll it around inside of your soul and see what you think and what you want to get done. Watch these little shows, and as you watch them, you be your own Talmud. (laughs) You be Rav Jonah. And make sure you make comment about what's right and what's wrong about the show. Kids, you think that's actually the real St. Nicholas? Make the commentary and get it straight. And it'll be a better Christmas. And we'll understand God's grace far, far better. That's how we should tell the story.